0: Now, this morning, I want to return to the series that we've been in for the last several weeks, taking on this eternally critical question, Jesus, the only way? If you're a guest today, uh, we're, we're trying to answer that question because we know that we live under a culture of postmodernism that says there's no absolutes. There's, you know, there's no absolute truth. There's no absolute standard. And when it comes to matter of religion, especially, no religion has the right to declare itself to be the only true religion, and other religions false, in fact, or even inferior to what you believe. And that's what the culture that we live in says. And increasingly, they're becoming hostile to Christianity because we say, no, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Now, what you're going to hear today, to some, if you're a guest, is going to be a little bit academic, But hang with us, because you're coming in kind of midway through the series. But I think you're going to learn some important things today about what the religions of the world really teach. Are they really all alike? We've talked about the idea that what we're trying to do here at the bridge is we're trying to equip ourselves, as people who sincerely believe that Jesus is the way to eternal life, we are trying to equip ourselves that how we can share that faith in a very sensitive and respectful way, but how we can share why we believe that to be true. And Peter, one of the original 12 disciples, he said, that's what we should be doing. We should be preparing ourselves to give an answer. So far, we've looked at postmodernism's answers to this idea and their response to the idea of Jesus being the only way. One is that he never existed. Another thing is that Christians, even though Jesus may have existed, this person in history, then Christians have mythologized him. He never claimed to be what Christians have made him today, and he never did the kind of things that Christians say he did today. So they say that we've just really elaborated on the personhood of Jesus as a historical person. Last week we talked about this. Many will say, yeah, Jesus did live. In fact, he was a religious figure of great influence in our world. And he was a great teacher. He taught so many wonderful things about life and relating to each other and love and forgiveness but he was only one great religious leader among many great religious leaders like Confucius, Confucius and, and Buddha and, and Muhammad and many others. That He's a great leader, but he's only one leader among many leaders. We looked at how we would respond to that. We saw last week that Jesus is unique to all those other world religion leaders. He's unique in his personal claims. He's unique in his personal actions. He's unique in his supernatural power. We saw last week that he's unique in his death and absolutely unique in his resurrection. Now today, we're gonna take on another response that is challenging for us to address. And that's this idea that Christianity is one religion among many religions. It's a good religion, but so are all the other religions of the world. Basically today, many people espouse the idea that all religions are basically the same. They're all the same. They're all trying to get us to the same place. They're just different ways of doing that. M. Sharif Bessioni is one voice like that, represents one voice. He's an emeritus professor of law at the Paul University, and he, he says something that echoes so many people's sentiments on this. When he says, all religions lead to God using different paths. Judgment is not by the choice we make, but how we pursue the path of the choice we make. And in other words, it's not what choice, what religion you choose, it's how devoted you are to that particular choice. He goes on to say, different religions and cultures are equal in the eyes of God. Don't miss that. See, that's what people believe. That from God's perspective, they're all equal, they're all beneficial, they're all to honor him. And it goes on to say, so therefore, all religions of the world should be seen as equal in the eyes of humankind, of mankind. Now, that makes sense. From a human perspective of fairness, and certainly, is a predominant characteristic of postmodernism culture and belief today. That God looks at them all the same, so we should look at them all the same. But does God look at them all the same? Well, let me just give one challenge that what Jesus taught when he was here in Matthew 7 21. One of the scariest things Jesus ever said, by the way, is this He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, not everyone who prays the prayers, not everyone who sings the song, not everyone's getting there, Jesus said, who thinks they're getting there. Sir Michelle Geller, who's a famous actress and entertainment celebrity, she echoes the voices of thousands and thousands more when she says this I consider myself a spiritual person. See, Polls show that 90% of people in America still today believe in God. They believe themselves to be spiritual people. She says, I'm one of them. I'm spiritual. But look what she says. She says, I believe in an idea of God, although it's my own personal idea of God. Oh, yeah, I believe in God, but I believe in the kind of God that I believe in. She goes on to say, I find religions interesting, and I've been to every kind of denomination, Catholic and Christian and Jewish and Buddhist, Now, look what she says. I've taken bits from everything and customized it. Now, she she represents, and I only use her voice because she represents so many voices who say, you know what, I'll take a little bit from Buddhism, and I'll take a little bit from Islam, and I'll take a little bit from Christianity, and I'll take some from Judaism. I'll take their best features, and I'm going to put them together, and I'll formulate my own religious systems. I can't miss, right? Because I got a little bit from everybody, so I've got to be on the right path. But again, look what Scripture says in Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. See, it's not about what sounds good, what feels good, what is good with my lifestyle, what I believe in. What really it all comes down to is what is true. What can we take to bank eternal? And so, how about it? Are all the religions of the world essentially the same? a little bit of different lingo, a little different semantics, a little different of worship styles? Are they all basically the same? Are they all going to get us to the same place? Well, today I want to kind of take a, a Disney adventure. How I many you saying, "It's a small world after all? you know, it's a small world after. All. Well, let's see if it's really a religious small world after all. And religions are all basically the same. And we're all there. They're all designed to get us to the same place. Is that true? Let's look. Let's look. And I got to move quickly. All the notes will be available for those of you who want the details and all the quotes and all that. They'll be available at the resource center after the service. There's no way you'll be able to scribble them all down. And I got to move really fast today. So you ready to go? All right, let's look at Hinduism predominant religion in certain parts of the world. Well, what do they believe about God? Well, they don't believe about God. They believe that there's 300,000 gods. And what most Hindus will do is they'll choose two or three of them, and they'll devote themselves to those specific gods of the 300,000 gods. See, they're led by gurus. There's no founder of Hinduism that that is identifiable. So they're led by gurus, which are basically teachers. And they're considered among Hindus to be very holy men, very holy leaders. And many of them are even worshipped after their deaths, not because they believe they become gods or anything, but because they just worship their memory, and they worship what they had contributed to their lives. So there's four goals, basically, in Hinduism. One is Dharma, and that's fulfilling of one's purpose. Now, that's a twofold thing, fulfilling your purpose vocationally. We know the predominant place that Hinduism is practiced is in India. In India, for for centuries and centuries, and still, in many cases, they're they're trying to to improve it, but on our class system. In other words, if you're born to a father who's a shoemaker, you're going to be a shoemaker. If you're born to a father who's a doctor, then you're probably going to become a doctor if you demonstrate the aptitude to to learn medicine. But it's a caste system. So you're going to fulfill your place. But it's also a way of living. It's a way of treating people. It's a way of righteousness and and character and integrity that you should pursue. Then there's also Artha. That's prosperity or success in worldly pursuits. In other words, we should be industrious. We should be pursuing things. We should be successful people. There's Kama, and that is romantic love and and, and sexual desire. Some of you may have heard of a little book called the Sutra, which is supposed to teach us how to be dynamic sexually. See, everyone's going to rush out and get that book after. (laughs) And then there's moksha, which basically is what the real end of the religion is all about. And that is liberation from reincarnation, liberation from rebirth. Because within Hinduism, as well as Buddhism, they believe that we will be born over and over and over and over and over and over again, that we'll have many lives. Now, it teaches that humanity needs to be liberated from this endless cycle, a samsara, of reincarnation, and which is brought on by karma. And what is karma? Karma is the effect of all the words we've ever said, all the deeds we've ever done in our past lives, in the life we're living right now, in all the present lives that we may have to live as we're stuck in this cycle of living life over and over and over again. So liberation is obtained when the individual expands his or her being into an infinite level and realizes that the self, the atma, is the same as Brahma. Now, Brahma's not their god. Brahma is like a force that permeates the universe. This is somewhat like a Star Wars kind of mentality. You know, Luke, the force is all around you. Feel the force. Well, that's, that's kind of it, that, that, that really what we're trying to do is we're trying to become one, enlightened with nature and the order of the universe. And it can only be achieved by following one of the following dis- disciplines. And one is yoga. Now, when we're talking yoga, we're not talking this stuff, you know, the bending and the stretching that we think of as yoga today. Uh, well, yoga, in this context, is union with God. So it's basically Yani yoga, way to be united with God or with Brahma, their concept of God, this force. And that's salvation by knowledge of ancient writings and inward meditation. And this is considered the hardest way to do it, just through discipline of mind, by studying and by meditating. Then there's bhakti yoga, union with God through devotion to one of the many Hindu deities, proving your life devoted. Probably the most popular one, is the karma yoga, which is salvation through works, basically through ceremonies and sacrifices and pilgrimages and all things that must be done without thought of a reward. So it's not like saying, I'm doing this so that I, I can end this repeated cycle of re- No, it's just that you're doing it. And see, in fact, if you're doing it, hoping to end the, then then you've canceled your whole lifetime out. So you get stuck in this, see? And so their idea is they're trying to lose themselves and become one with Brahman with the force of all that really is. And they keep coming back and living life after life after life after life after life after life, until somehow, someday, they ultimately realize this end goal. Now, Buddhism is not a lot unlike Hinduism, but yet they have their uniqueness. Buddhism was founded by Siddhartha Gautama, who was born in 560 BC to an upper-class family. As a matter of fact, he was so sheltered in his upbringing that it wasn't until he reached his mid-20s that he realized there was human suffering in the world. He was brought up in wealth and luxury and and protection and security. And all of a sudden, when he became a man, he started out getting around. He said, holy smoke, there's a lot of people in this world who are really suffering a lot. And so he studied with some Hindu masters. Hinduism was already prevalent. He studied with some of those gurus and he practiced asceticism for a time. What is asceticism? That's a life of self denial, eating little, having very little to wear and to dress, and very meager living conditions. And so he goes from this really wealthy, kind of protected lifestyle to practicing asceticism with the gurus. And somewhere along the line, he says, This isn't so good. It's not good to be overindulgent, but this ascetic life, this isn't very good either. So he chose a middle ground, that of meditation. He says, this is where I'm going to land. And one day while meditating under a fig tree, after all this, he eventually achieved that, under the Hindu idea, that, that, that yena, uh, yoga, which is enlightenment just through meditation, just through studying spiritual kind of literature and things like that. So Buddhism basically is a path of escape, in much the same way that Hinduism is, escaping this repeated cycle of samsara, this repeated cycle of being born over and over and over again. To achieve this now, they believe in the path, the path is supreme enlightenment, And they have four noble truths about what life, what their core belief is, is four noble truths, which is that life is suffering. Life is all about suffering. There's so much suffering in life. That's what they believe. And they say, now the reason that there's so much suffering, that's caused by desires for pleasure and prosperity. People are never happy and they're always looking for pleasure and they're always looking for more. And and that's why there's so much suffering in the world. So suffering can end and be overcome by eliminating desires. And desires can be eliminated through the Buddhist eightfold path, the teachings of Buddha. There's eight, an eightfold path that we need to practice in our lives to be enlightened and get over all this suffering. And, and they're basically things like Right view of life, and the right intentions, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And otherwise, it's a works thing. Do the right thing. Think the right thing. Act the right way. Speak the right way. Treat people the right way. And so if we do enough right, then ultimately, we can achieve this status, this transcendent state of existence in mind of enlightenment. Now, understand, in Buddhism, the idea is not going to heaven, or being with God, because there is no really concept of God as we understand God in Christianity, and in Judaism, or even in Islam. The idea is reaching nirvana. And nirvana is escaping all human suffering, all human happiness, all human struggle, all human thought. And basically, we reach a place where we are absorbed again into whatever force the universe is all about and we reach a place of peace because we don't even acknowledge existing anymore. So really, freedom and salvation is ceasing to exist. Being free of suffering, being free of pleasure, being free of success, being free of... Just being kind of out there. Now, here's a problem with all this. The writings of Buddha were not written until 400 years after his death. 400 years later. So there's no way, there's no reliable way to ascertain how reliable they are because they were written so long, 400 years. That's a long time after the founder's been gone when people are reflecting back on what verbally has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. Now contrast that with the Bible. When Paul writes to Timothy, he says, listen, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. I did a series, and you can still get the series. It's called The Bible, God's Word or Man's Myth. And we, we, we do kind of what we're doing with this series. We decide, can you really rely on the Bible? Is it just something man-made up, or is it God's Word? We believe that it's inspired by God. And, in fact, the writings of the Bible are all written much closer to the times of Jesus in the New Testament than anything that we have from any other religion in antiquity. Now, let's look really quickly at Shintoism. Shintoism is the religion of Japan, and it's unique to Japan. This is not a religion that has spread around the world. It's still practiced by over 5 million people in Japan, although Japan has become a less religious nation subsequent to World War II. But in Shintoism... Like many other world religions, there's no central religious founder of the religion. No one came on and founded Shintoism. There's no body of religious laws, moral laws, ethical laws. There's no holy text. There's nothing like the Bible or the Quran. And it's a very loosely organized priesthood. Japan is the country of gods. Her inhabitants are descendants of the god. And this is key to Shintoism. They're the country of gods because the gods are the deceased Japanese. They're all gods, and they all can become gods. The kami, their gods, are collectively called "I'm going to say Yeo Oruzu, which means literally eight million gods. So Hinduism has a mere three hundred thousand. Shintoism has 8 million, and they're not trying to be exact because the gods increase as people die. So the most famous of their gods is actually a goddess named Amaterasu, and she's the sun goddess. And in fact, it's where they get their national name. They don't call themselves Japan. They call themselves Nippon. And it's the house of the rising sun. If you see their flag, it's a big white bordered flag with a big orange circle in the middle to represent the sun. They get that from their chief goddess. Now, again, you can't see all these, but these are available in the notes after. But their core beliefs are affirmation of family and tradition. Very family-centered system of society and religion. Very traditional. Affirmation of reverence towards nature. Affirmation of physical cleanliness. That's why when you go to a Japanese house, what's the first thing you do before you go in? You take your shoes off, right? But it's not just physical cleanliness. It's spiritual cleanliness. It's it's soul cleanliness. It's affirmation of matsuri, which are festivals that are held in honor of all the gods of Shintoism. And they enter into temples through a gate like that on a screen, and that's their entryway to their gods. Now, there's no need for salvation to a Japanese person because their heritage as being Japanese is their salvation because they're the country of gods, and when they die, they will be absorbed into the ancestry of their national heritage. Let's look to Islam, a lot in the news about Islam. Islam comes from Muhammad, who was born in Mecca in 570 AD. Unique to all these world religions that we looked at, all of these were founded before Christ. This is the only one that we're going to talk about that was founded after Christ, 500 and some years after Christ. Founded by Muhammad, who originally was named Abdul Qasim. He was orphaned at a very, very young age, and he was actually raised by his uncle, who was a caravan trader. So he lived in, again, a pretty wealthy class. He himself became a trade, a trader, and he ultimately married his employer, who was a widow woman. And at age twenty-five, he stopped working, and he dedicated himself to meditation. He got this right, Stella. I love you, but I did it wrong. Should have married a wealthy woman. I spent the rest of my life meditating. Or playing golf, or meditating while I'm playing golf. I don't know. But anyhow, historically, he stopped working at 25 to dedicate himself to meditating. Well, one day while he's meditating in the cave, as his report is, he was visited by the angel Gabriel, same angel that visited Mary, and allegedly gave him, over the next 23 years, what has become known as the Quran. And it was, the Quran means recitation. Recitation. And so everything was given to him verbally by the angel Gabriel. And later on, Muhammad shared it with some other people who were literate, and they wrote the Quran down. Now, he claims to have been called like God, much like Moses and and Jesus and and other prophets before him, to preach repentance and submission to God and a coming day of judgment. He did not claim that what he was presenting was new. Already was established in Judaism already was established in Christianity. But what he held was that Jewish people and Christians had polluted what the true faith was, what the truth about God was, what the truth that God had revealed to humankind was. They had debased it. They had polluted it. And so God had to call yet another prophet, him, in order to clean up the mess and to bring humanity back to where God wanted them to be. And so he believed, And he professed that Allah is the one true God. It's a monotheistic religious system. Allah has sent many prophets, all the way back to Adam. They would trace this back to the very first man, and they would believe creation like we believe it. Adam was the first prophet. And all the way now, through Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah and all these great prophets, Paul, all these New Testament characters, even Jesus, but he would say that Muhammad then, is the last and the greatest of all those prophets that God had sent into the world. The Quran is a supreme book. It takes priority over the Torah of the Jewish people, over the Psalms of the Jewish people, over the New Testament that we study each week. We would say the Quran is the superior it's the final revelation from Allah, from God. And As far as what they believe about the life after, they believe that when everyone dies, they're going to appear before Allah. And Allah is going to put on a just set of balances, good deeds and bad deeds. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, if Allah is pleased with you more than he's displeased with you, then he will invite you into eternal paradise. If not, you will go into eternal damnation. How do you be a good enough person? Well, you do that by following the five pillars of Islam. It's five guidances on how you can please Allah. It all starts with the Shahada, and that is the public declaration of faith that there is one God, his name is Allah, and his greatest messenger is Muhammad, and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. It all starts there with that public proclamation, the Shahada. Subsequent to that, then there's the salah. Those are prayers. They pray five times a day. Now, they're not praying necessarily like you'll pray and, and ask God, you know, for this person or help that person or help me or help me. They're, they're praying ritualistic prayers, but they do it five times a day. So it's the actual obligation of praying that is going to win the favor of Allah, not necessarily the words that are spoken. Then there's the swam, or sometimes called the siyam, and that's fasting. They give up food during daylight hours and drink, many of them, during the season of Ramadan, which is the ninth month of the lunar calendar. They had finished it here just a little while back, about a couple months ago. But during the daylight hours, they won't eat. They won't drink. And this starts at puberty. Now, there's some exceptions for pregnant women and stuff like that, but then there's other penance that they have to do and alms they have to do to make up for that. But they will fast during that time. Then there's the zakah. And that is the fact that they need to take some of the blessings that Allah has blessed them with, the material blessings, the financial blessings, and they need to use them to take care of the poor, especially the poor in the community of Islam. And then finally, there's the hajj. The fifth pillar of Islam is at some point, at least once during a Muslim's lifetime, they need to take a pilgrimage to Mecca. That's where you see them going around that big stone. You see thousands and thousands of them walking around the big stone in Mecca. That's the Hajj. They need to fulfill that once in their life. So that's what they have to do to appease Allah. But understand this, they never know to the moment of their death whether they have done enough of that to appease Allah. There is no guarantee. There is no assurance of eternal life. Even Muhammad said of himself, there's no guarantee that Allah is going to be merciful to me when I cross into the next life. Now, the one thing that a distorted version of Islam says is that if you martyr yourself for the cause of Allah, as many of these bombers are doing it, that's instant entrance into paradise. So, how are all these religions so alike? People say well they're all basically the same. They're just different religions trying to get us to the same place. Now, anyone who makes such a claim has never really studied these religions. Cuz just from this little snapshot this morning, are they anything alike? Are they all trying to go to the same place? Are they all worship the same concept of God? No, they're not alike. Even the concept of God for Christianity, there's one God and one Savior, Jesus Christ. Judaism, there's one God. They're still hoping and looking, at least the Orthodox Jews, for the coming of Messiah someday. In Islam, there's one God, Allah, but he's not the God of the Jews and he's not the God of the Christians because they've debased that God. In Hinduism, there's 300,000 gods all summed up in eternal power called Brahma. In Shintoism, there's 8 million gods, but they're not exact because as Japanese people die, many of them are become the godly ancestors. Buddhism, there's no god. That's not the whole idea. It's enlightenment, escaping suffering. Then you talk about salvation. The difference is there. Christianity says that salvation comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Judaism says salvation comes through good deeds and saying prayers and believing in the ultimate coming of Messiah. Islam believes that salvation comes only through pleasing Allah, through the five pillars of Islam. Hinduism says salvation is just liberation from reincarnation, from samsara, from having to live life over and over and over and over again. Shintoism says, well, you know, if you're Japanese, you're okay. Anyone else, you're in trouble. And then Buddhism says it's freedom from suffering and pleasure. When we basically cease to exist and we become absorbed into the force. That is really the universe and and nature. Logically. I mean, if you really study these things, logically, you can come to a conclusion where you say, you know what, they're all false. You can't trust any of them. But you cannot logically come to the conclusion that they're all true because they're so different, they're not even trying to go the same place. They don't believe the same things about God, the same things about faith, the same thing. about They're just completely different. I love when t- speaking to someone says, well, all religions are the same, and they're all going to... i love to say, I'd love to see your research on that. Can you show me your research? Not once have everyone said, oh, yeah, I've got it all laid out here. Let me show you my research. They're saying that because they're parodying what postmodernism says. They've never searched that out. They've never put... You, Probably a lot of you haven't. You've come in, many people after the other service already have said to me, I never heard this stuff. One guy came up, he says, I'm Japanese. My mother is Shinto. I never knew this. He says, now I understand why it's so hard to witness to her. See, we don't know it. That's why we're taking time to do this so that we can intelligently speak about it. Now, since all religions cannot be equally true, if we do believe in an afterlife, we have to make a choice. We better be careful in making that choice. Not embracing that which is convenient for the lifestyle that we want to live. Not just picking and choosing what I thought, oh, I like that aspect and I like this, but I like that. Or not not believing that really everything's gonna get you there. We're just all taking different roads to the same place. Not true. We better make our choice clear because remember what Jesus said. In Matthew 7, 21, he said, not everyone says Lord, Lord to me is going to get there. Revelation 20, 15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's what Jesus says. See, we have to make a choice. Now, most of us would stand, but I hope we stand even firmer now, and what Paul says in Romans 1.16 when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm not ashamed of Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. He says, I'm banking on that one. He said, because that gospel, that truth, that account is the power of God in salvation. He says, first offered to the Jews. And then offered to every Gentile, every non-Jew. Jesus said in Luke 13 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive. Becky said, You know, if you haven't really checked this religion thing out, if you're falling into that idea that everybody's going to make it and it doesn't matter what road you follow, as long as you follow that road's path, and all, then he, Jesus said, You need to strive to make sure you understand where the truth really is because not everyone's going to make it. In fact, Jesus says in the same passage, for broad is the gate that leads to destruction. Broad is the road to lead to destruction. Broad is all those things that seem right to man, but in the ends lead to death. C.S. Lewis, a famous author and a Christian apologetic, broke Christianity out saying this. He says, you know what the real difference is? He said, one major difference is that, unlike other religions, Christianity proclaims a gospel of grace and not works. Every one of those other religious systems we looked at was all about works. you got to live life after life after life after life after life until somehow you live a good enough life that you're absorbed into Brahman or you're absorbed into enlightenment. Islam, you better live a good enough life. You better follow those five pillars of Islam or you're not going to please Allah if you don't please Allah he's going to send you an eternal damnation. See, Christianity is unique among all the religions of the world because it's founded on grace. Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, a verse that we quote a lot here at the bridge, where it says, For by grace have you been saved. What's grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is what God offers me. Grace is what God offers you that we don't deserve and that we can't earn, we can't work for, we can't buy. There's no way we can get it. Except one thing. What does he say? For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. He said, it's not by works. He says, it's a gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's just something he wants to give to every one of us. Because he's God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus wasn't being arrogant. Jesus wasn't trying to be exclusive in a negative way. Jesus wasn't speaking condescendingly. Jesus was saying, this is God's plan for humanity, and it's his only plan. And and, and it was such a a serious plan that I, I had to come and die. No other world religious leader ever did that or even claimed that. We saw last week. Only Jesus said I'm God's plan and there's no other plan. And I'm here because I love you. And I'm here because I want to to save you. So Jesus says in John 4, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed over from death to life. Jesus The only way? Let's bow our heads. I know we've covered a lot of material this morning. And that's why I provided notes for you if you want them. But listen, what what I hope you see is that all religions are nothing alike. Their ideas about God, their ideas about salvation, their ideas about the afterlife, they're nothing alike. And they're absolutely nothing like Christianity. They all might be false, including Christianity. But they cannot all be true. So you have to make a decision. And what I've shared for you thus far, I hope, has, has given you some serious things to think about. Serious things to, to break Christianity out from the other religions of the world. To break Jesus out from all the other founders of world religions. But ultimately, you have to make a choice because it's by faith that we receive that gift from God. That is Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Have you ever done that? If not, Jesus brought you here today to give you that opportunity. And it's all because he loves you. Again, here at the bridge and as believers, we're, we're, we're not trying to be arrogant, we're not trying to be egotistical. About Jesus, about our faith. The fact of the matter is, every one of us here realize that we don't deserve what Jesus has offered. We are recipients of His mercy, of His grace. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't leave this campus in that condition. I Want you to do one of several things. Either, either come and see one of the pastors that have these shirts on, like I do, or the best thing you can do is go out the doors, turn right out the main doors, and go to the next step booth. And someone at the next step booth will, will talk to you about how you can know that your sins are forgiven and you can know that you have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Look up at me a moment. If neither of those things, at least pick up one of these books. Either at the guest services booth or at our literature rack, it says you can be sure. It will walk you through whatever, what, everything God has revealed through the Bible about how you can know you have eternal life. It's all there. It's all for you. And it all comes through a simple act of faith. Romans ten eight says, "If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved." That's all he counts. You can't buy it, you can't earn it, you can't win it. All you have to do is receive it. I hope you'll do that this morning. Now, next week we're going to take everything that we've talked about, and we're going to go back to First Peter three fifteen, and we're going to look at the final part of that verse, which is absolutely critical when Peter says, always be prepared to give a defense for the reason for the hope that lives in you. But he says, but do it with respect and sensitivity. So what do we do with what we have? Come back next week, and I'm going to share that with you.